Disney, the Disney Corporation betrayed us a long time ago, several years ago. <clears throat> they hosted, probably been 20 years or more ago, Disney hosted down at Disney World a coming out party for gays and lesbians. And they've gone downward ever since. <clears throat> they have, I know, it, I know they have at least one day a year where it's just gay day uh, in, at Disney down in Florida. In their children's division of books, they have a book entitled Growing Up Gay, where they are uh, <coughs> speaking in favor of children becoming homosexuals and lesbians as they, as they reach adulthood. They want them to be thinking about that. And most recently, the Hallmark Channel has decided to keep their commercial that has two lesbians kissing at a wedding ceremony. And they took it away for a while, but then after pressure, they have now decided in several statements they've released lately to bring that commercial back, and in addition to that, they are promising now to create more shows, more movies that have um, this uh, lifestyle uh, prominent in the movie. <coughs> And so various media outlets are making more and more efforts, evidently, to push against God and to destroy the family as God has set it up, to make a mockery of what God has set up. I didn't know, and I know I, I live... I just don't pay attention. I'm not, I don't pay attention. I don't like filthy things, so I don't pay attention to them. But it also, it often puts me in a sense of not knowing what's going on. I didn't know this show had been going on called um, Married at First Sight. Evidently been going on for several seasons, but it's a Lifetime channel has this show where couples get married without knowing each other. And at first sight, been doing this now for several uh, seasons. So I decided to look on their uh, website, and if I'm reading it right, 37 have gotten married under these conditions, and 30 of those 37 that have gotten married over these several seasons. Eight of them are still married, and. There are several children scattered in that, um, in those couples somewhere or another. It's just a mockery uh, of what God has uh, set up. Back in 1974, the American Psychological Association had listed homosexuality as a, as a mental illness. But in 1974, they took homosexuality, homosexuality off the mental illness list to try to normalize 
disturbing enough that they were listed as a mental illness and not what it really is, and that is just uh, outright sin before God. But they had listed it that for several years, and then they took it off. And there has been a battle waged by that movement for a long time to try to normalize these types of relationships. There's a school in Montana I was reading about, Bozeman High School, who have um, various groups, extra activity groups. One is called um, Environmental Awareness Club. Uh, also have one called uh, Sexuality and Gender Alliance uh, Club at a high school. At a high school. And, but they won't allow the Fellowship of Christian Athletes to meet because the, the FCA had come out with a statement a couple of years back uh, that they were going to stand with one, one woman for, with one man for life. They, in their statement, they said they, they feel that fits best for society and is in line with God's uh, will. Sunday we talked about the good confession. We started in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold on eternal life. To which you are called and about which, Paul telling Timothy, you witness the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. There is a connection between making the good, conf- good confession and the good fight of the faith. We need to realize that when we make the good confession, that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that we have entered a war, the good fight. And part of that good fight is the culture, culture war that is about us. There are many elements of the good fight. But part of that is fighting society. Okay? Spiritual fight. It's not physical, it's not not political, it is a spiritual fight. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 for a second. 2 Corinthians 10. Beginning in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says... Chapter 10, verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of of the flesh, but they are mighty before God to the casting down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that that is exalted against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So our... Our battle is about thoughts of men and bringing the knowledge of God to the thoughts of men so that the ultimate result will be obedience to Christ. That's our battle. It's the good fight of the faith. And we must engage in this war. We must realize that we are saying, yes, I will be a soldier of Christ when we make the good confession. 
So there's a lot of teaching that must be done as we are urging someone to come to Christ. To come to Christ. They must know that this is a, a war that we are we are taking on. Alright. So I'd like for us to discuss the part of the cultural war having to do with marriage okay, and some of the things that we have introduced uh, this evening. And I'd like for us to consider two questions. Why is this important? And then how are we to engage in the war? Why is this important? And so I'll go ahead and help us with the obvious why, but then I want you to also be thinking about more reasons why this is important. But obviously it's important to us because anything that challenges God's will, anything that is in opposition to what God has set up, causes us to be concerned because of our respect for Him. So let's look at a couple of passages together as we think about that. First Timothy, uh, please turn with me to First Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1 for just a minute. We'll begin in verse 8, 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 8. Paul says, But we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully, as knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and unruly. Now, ideally, if we all were without sin, then we wouldn't need law. Only one man has ever come to earth to live, who uh, live perfectly. Otherwise, we need God's law. We need his instructions. But Paul is making a point here. He says, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and unruly, and to some degree that includes all of us, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. Now notice verse 10. For fornicators and for abusers of themselves with men, for men stealers, for liars, for false swears, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Okay, so you see that fornication includes, uh, from your knowledge of Scripture, fornication includes a variety of sexual sin. And then, right on the tail of that, he, he mentions. Abusers of themselves with men. This is a compound word in the original, meaning the uh, first part of the word is men. The second part of the word is bed. Okay. In other words, males in the bed. Okay. That, that little phrase there in verse uh, 10, right after fornicators. Abusers of themselves with men is really a compound word, and they... That's the translation, at least here in the American Standard Version. That's the translation given. Okay. I'm sure many of you have heard of the commentary set by uh, the last name of Barnes. Okay. And when you read Barnes on this, when he comments on this word, he says... 
This is a word too bad to explain. Now Barnes was at least three generations ago of biblical scholars. Think about the difference in time, the difference in attitude between, say, 70 years ago and then what is now. Okay. But when Barnes says this is a word too bad to have to explain, he's being very honest. And that's the way many of us feel about this. The reason we do not like to even discuss this because this is disgusting. Okay. And that's the word here. It's just males in the bed together. It's just disgusting. And that's, that's why Barnes makes that comment. And that's why the translation here is given abusers of themselves with mankind. Okay. So, not only is this contrary to God's will, but God, of course, comes right out against it in many different ways. Turn over now to Second uh, Peter chapter 2. We normally go to Romans 1. Of course, that's, a, that's, that's where we ought to go, I mean, no doubt. But let's look at just a couple of passages that also deals with this, apart from Romans 1. Notice here in Peter's remarks about false teachers in 2 Peter 2, he gives some examples from the Old Testament about God's view of things which are, are false. Okay. So we'll just pick up um, verse 4. 2, Timothy, uh, 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. If God spared not angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell and committed them to pits of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Okay. In other words, he's saying that if you go astray from God, there's going to be certain judgment waiting on you. So he's just giving different examples. There's one from the angels. Now he gets to Noah's day, verse 5. And he spared not the ancient world, but preserved Noah with seven others, a preacher of righteousness, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, verse 6, he gets to Sodom and Gomorrah. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them. Notice that. He condemned them. What does God say about what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, he condemned them with an overthrow, having made them an example unto those who should live ungodly. And so I'm reading now here out of the American Standard Version here. So the American Standard Version says these are activities that are condemned by God and they are characteristic of how the ungodly live. And delivered, verse 7, and delivered righteous Lot, who were sore distressed by the lascivious life of the wicked. Notice that. The lascivious life of the wicked. Okay. So do we get an idea of God's view on this sort of sin, this sort of lifestyle? Okay. So it's, a, it's wicked, it's ungodly, it's unrighteous. It is something that God severely uh, condemns. We remember Genesis 19, don't we? What happens then? What happens when the angels come and visit Lot? That 
Okay. Yeah. The angels appear as men. And they come into the city. Lot is at the gate of the city of Sodom. And he invites them to come to his house to have a meal and to stay. They said, no, we'll be fine out here. But he insists, and they do. And then that night, several of the men of the city, it says both the young and the old, surround Lot's wife, Lot's house, and say, you know, we know you have some men in there. Bring them out to us. For what reason? So that we may know them. Know them. And that's the same kind of know that's used in Genesis 4 verse 1 where it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she bare Cain to him. It's the same kind of know. This reminds you very much of like a pack of animals who who have fresh blood who has come into their their area, and they begin to just surround the house and say, we've got some fresh meat here. Bring, bring this out to us. And these are human beings acting like this. So this is not a new fight, but it is a fight that we must fight. Okay, so why is it important? Because it goes directly in opposition to all that God has set up in regard to the family Husbands and wives and children. Okay. So. They were the descendants of Ham. The, the one, yeah, they were descendants of Ham, the ones that were acting that way. That's right. So, having thought just a moment now, why, why would you say this fight, this, this fight is important? Why is this important? What, what makes it so important? Because it opens up to a whole other world of sins. Okay. Ken's saying it opens up to another world of sin. That's very true. It does open the door. And we'll, we'll probably say more about that as we go along. But it does open the door for just about anything that would be evil. Andrew is saying that uh, Satan is particularly interested and good at attacking the home because he knows that's the foundation of so much society and church and he will continue to, to work at that. Okay? It, it just destroys the very foundations. Okay. Let's look at it this way. 
What is God's eternal purpose for everything that he does? What does God want more than anything there is to want? For all to have salvation. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. For everyone to have. That's God's purpose. That's his heart. Okay? That's, that's everything. That's, that's, that's where we are headed. That's what we want to be about. Okay? God would have all men to be saved. Every one of them. To be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. When did God start having this desire? Was it when we opened up the Bible to start reading? Is that when God started having this desire? It goes way back. Not just when man sinned, not just when he created man, but this is an eternal purpose. And notice this with me in Ephesians. Um, I want you to know that that is a phrase used uh, by Paul, inspiration, Ephesians 3, verse 10 and 11. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. To the intent that now unto the principalities... And the powers in the heavenly places might be, might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of God in bringing Christ is an eternal purpose. And it, it all involves salvation. While you're there, look at Ephesians 1, verses uh, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love. Okay. God had this purpose, and Mark is mentioning here purity, as part of it, to make us pure, to make us saved, to make us pure. This all started, it's, I mean, would you say that God is love? Yeah, you would. Would you say that God is eternal? Yeah. He's an eternal love. He, he, wants, he has been wanting man to be saved as long as there is something to think about. I mean, he just is an eternal love. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter for just a second. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is something I'm, I'm, I'm intending to hammer this a little bit because I want us to think about it. 1 Peter 1. 18 through 20. <clears throat> First Peter 1, 18 to 20. Knowing that you were redeemed not with corruptible things such as silver or gold from your vain manner of life handed down from your fathers, but you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of lamb without spot, without blemish. First, verse 20. Who... Jesus, who was foreknown indeed before the foundation of the world, but was manifested at the end of these times uh, for your sake. So, would it be fair to say that everything that God has done has been in view of saving mankind through Christ? In creating this world, what's some of the first things that God did when he created this world? He put man, he created man first, then woman. Okay. He put man in the garden to work. This is all before sin. Okay. And then, 
He created marriage. He brought the woman unto man. And all of this we have to understand. We have to, uh, we have to admit that God has in mind bringing Jesus into the world already. So God knew that marriage in the home would be of great importance if he was going to bring the gospel through Jesus, going to bring it into the world. The reason that this subject is so important is because when, when things go astray, marriage-wise, then it undermines people's ability to receive the gospel. Because what is it that you learn at home? What is it God wants us to learn at home? When there's a stable home, okay, when marriage is between man and woman, and they stay together, and things are, there, there are just certain attributes that kids will learn okay, in, in such a good situation. They'll learn responsibility. They'll learn respect for, for authority. They will learn to uh, obey. And they'll learn honesty. Okay. At least that much in, in most homes that are staying together, that have one man, one woman, the children will learn at least those qualities, and that sets them up to be a good candidate for the gospel of, of Jesus. You know, when you talk about the parable of the sower and the, and the soils, the one, the heart that received the seed of the word, Luke eight fifteen, was the good and honest heart. And that's, that's what parents are driving for. That's what parents have in mind. I want to bring a child up that is good and honest. Okay, so they'll be able to receive the gospel and then go forth and be servants of Christ. When all that is undermined, okay, which is happening in our world, then there's less and less, fewer and fewer people receiving the gospel. Okay, because what God set up is being taken away. Furthermore, the Love that is to exist between a husband and wife is often compared to God's love for us. Like it happens there in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is also the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. Well, children are to grow up seeing parents love and thereby learning and preparing themselves to receive the ultimate love of, of Christ okay, through the gospel and through the cross. Okay. In fact, parents ought to be telling their children all the time that you know God brought us to brought you to us, and you are really His child, and He is we're His servants. And the reason that we have what we have going on in the home, the reason we have you know. We go to church, the reason we, we obey God's word, the reason we have rules, the reason we do as we do is because this is what God wants us to do. Okay. We're his agents and you are his children. And we're just doing what God wants us to do with you. And so when all that is undermined, it severely impacts one's ability to be able to receive the gospel. So I think the eternal purpose of God is what makes all this uh, very, very important. We might say it contaminates the soul. Yeah. It contaminates the soul. That's what it does. I also say that it destroys the typology. You know, the, 
that. See, God made us two things in every person. We have to worship something, and we have to find acceptance. Okay. That's every basic need of every man God created. Okay. And that goes towards worship, the true God. That goes towards training to that truth. So God would accept us, just like he told Cain. If you do right, don't you know you'll be accepted? Okay. Good point. Good point. So let's go over to the question now, how do we engage? One thing you've got to do is because people are using Jesus in such a loose way and very unauthorized and free way, but they, so many who want to try to be religious and be homosexual use Jesus because they feel like Jesus would, would endorse what they are doing. Okay. And we need to be clear and, and be able to show people that Jesus never endorsed homosexuality whatsoever. He never endorsed any sin. Hmm. He didn't endorse the tax collector's sin or the woman that had caused adultery. He never endorsed their sin or sinful lives. He told that woman to go and sin no more. Hmm. So yes, he loved them, but he did not say it was okay. Okay. So the woman caught in adultery and told her to go and sin no more. Jesus just doesn't endorse uh, sin. But he, the whole idea of Jesus has been perverted in our world. People do not look at their Bibles. They don't read their Bibles. They listen to what is said by people, by religious people, by people on TV. And that's why we're in the shape uh, that we're in. But we need to know Jesus, of course, in Matthew 19, he referred back to the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. And God made them male and female, and then said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife. So he made them male and female, and that's the way marriage uh, is to be. Okay. Also, in regard uh, to Jesus, he condemned fornication very often. Okay. Uh, later there in Matthew 19, he condemned uh, fornication. And we need to be able to show people that fornication involves this very type of lifestyle that we're discussing. Flip over quickly, if you don't mind, to Jude, the book of Jude. <clears throat> and notice with me, Jude is very similar to Second Peter chapter 2 in many ways. Look at Jude in um, verse 6 and 7. And in angels, Jude says, verse 6, Angels that kept not their principality, but left their proper habitation, he has kept them in everlasting bonds under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, having in light manner with these given themselves over to fornication. Notice that. They gave themselves over to fornication and has gone after strange flesh. Okay. And uh, they're set forth as an example uh, suffering the punishment of eternal fire. So notice that this type of Sodom and Gomorrah lifestyle is called both fornication and it's called strange, going after strange flesh. It's just not the way God uh, set things up. So Jesus, in condemning fornication, he condemns uh, this lifestyle. We could say a lot more uh, about that. We understand that, that uh, Jesus qualified the apostles to go and speak and write what they uh, spoke and, and, and talked you know, and what they wrote down. Okay. Through God, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus qualified them. So whatever Paul said about 
and whatever Peter said about it, okay, and condemned it, that's Jesus doing it just as well as they were doing it. Okay. Now, That's that's true. Are you talking about Jude five or? Which, yeah, Jude five. Go ahead and read that for us. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay. That's right. That's right. Shows that things are conditional. Things are conditional, and His love is the only thing that's not conditional. He's going to love us, but He's not going to save us unless we do it. And I'm glad you brought up love because that's another thing that this the society looks at and says, well, you Christians are not loving, but we have to be ready to talk to people about true love. What is, what is love? God's love is surrounded by his truth. You know, uh, when you read 1 Corinthians 13 and the qualities of love, well, one of them says love rejoices in the truth. Right? Love rejoices in the truth. In Philippians 1, 9 and 10 Paul prayed for the Philippians. He said, I, I pray that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment. And so love has many wonderful qualities, but it begins with the fact that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? And so it starts with the truth of God. And to describe love in any other way apart from the truth of Jesus is not really loving. It's not giving people the whole, the whole idea, the whole truth. Those think that a lot of it goes back to the word belief. There's such a misconception about what belief is because, like you said, well, I go people don't read their Bibles. Yeah. They don't understand what belief is. Yeah. Belief in, entails all of what Jesus was about. Yeah. Absolutely. You both, have to learn and you have to do it. Yeah. Both the compassion on the one hand, but also the stance against evil on the other hand. So we're trying to think about how will we engage. Certainly you've got to start with Jesus. But also we've got, we got to think about this. How do you engage someone who has no respect for the Bible? Because most of this community, most anyone you would speak to about this lifestyle, you, to talk to them about the Bible, they're just going to kind of wave their hand and say, you're, you know, you're one of those Bible bumpers. I know, I know who you are. How would you begin? Well, let me, this is the only thing I know to do. Okay. Everybody, no matter who they are, walking around breathing air, has some sort of point of right and wrong. It may be very, very low on the threshold of righteousness, but they have some point where they're going to say, this is not right. And so I believe that's, what, that's the way, in a very kind way, but if you're in a conversation with someone, you need to press that and say, okay, do you think that murder is wrong? Do you think that any sort of sexual act, do you think that abuse is wrong? And finally they're going to say, well, of course that's wrong. Then, then that's where you make your turn. Okay. And you say, okay, what is it that you appeal to that tells you that would be wrong? Whatever that is, you're now saying it's wrong. What, is, what are you appealing to? Do you, are you the standard of what's right and wrong in this world? And they're going to say, well, no, I'm not the standard. I'm not standard. 
Right? Well, how about your neighbor? Is he the standard of what is right and wrong in this world? No. no. Okay. Well, what about your local politician? Is he the No, he's a human being too. And so you just press that and press that and say, well, you know it's the, the ultimate standard of what's right and wrong has got to be somebody higher than us. And who is that higher person? Okay. And do you know of another higher being that is more revealed, okay, that we know more about than the God of the universe, the God of the Bible? Okay. And so that, to me, if someone doesn't respect the Bible, I think that is at least one way of getting... You have to get them to think about what, what are they appealing to. Most people don't even think about it. Okay? They're all about their emotions and what they feel and what their family does. But you've got to get someone to think about what's, what causes something to be right. Okay? Who causes something to be right? Who causes something to be wrong? And ultimately you want to get them to at least be able to look at God and the New Testament. That's where we, we must go if we have an opportunity with anybody in any belief, but especially in dealing with this uh, particular lifestyle. Okay. And then don't stop there. Okay. In the conversation, as you talk to them, say, if we do not go to God and the New Testament for what is right and what is wrong, what should be done, then getting back to Ken's statement about the door is open. Okay. If it's not God in the New Testament as a standard, then is there any way of shutting that gate? Is there any, is there any way of saying that something is actually wrong? Yeah. And so that's what you have to press upon uh, folks. Okay. In a, in a, Straightforward, but also in a kind way, but press upon them that that you know if that's not the standard, then everything is permissible and everybody is their own god. And is that the kind of world you think that has been set up? Maybe some people say yes, that's the kind of world that's been set up. But we're looking for people who might have some sort of of grain of honesty left in them. And so that's, um, what do you suggest as far as engaging people? Yeah. I just suggested two things. Start with Jesus and um, make sure you defend him, but also think about this standard idea. Isn't it true everybody will say something is wrong?
perhaps if they think he would go that far, uh, start talking about Jesus if they believe that he was a historical person. Uh, so, I mean, it's a step-by-step basis. And, and what I'm getting to is that Jesus said some things and he did some things. And what he said was, I am the way and the truth. Uh, so basically, anything that disagrees with Jesus is false. So if people can agree that Jesus was a real historical man, and perhaps even moves, if, uh, examining the evidences of his resurrection, then anything that Jesus said, you know, it's, uh, it has weight to it. Right. It has a lot of weight to it. Right. Another way that you can get to Jesus is hit up where it hurts. Okay, if there's no absolute, that means I kill you. I can take advantage of you. I can destroy your home. I can steal your blind. Yeah, that's the that's that's the idea. In a in a, um, we want to keep it, you know, as spiritual and as we can. But the idea is to get get everybody to see, all of us to see, that without Christ there is no hope. That we have no. It's a dark world. It's a very dark world. That's why Jesus said, "I am the light of the world." The reason is because He is the way. He's the He's the way to heaven. He's, he's the way to the truth. He is the truth. And somehow we have to get to that point. Somehow you've got to get them to give you the basis of why they believe it's okay. What are they doing for the basis? Yeah. If you can get that door open simply by getting, getting an answer to that question. Yeah. Why do you believe that homosexuality is okay? And that's a good good thought in that when you're dealing with someone and you, you got to ask questions that's right and why did, don't don't go in like gangbusters and and just say hey don't you know about this scripture don't you know about what Jesus said you know you got to be able to understand what 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 it is in their mind in other words any other way they're just going to tune you out we want to get we want to engage in the conversation it might be a little bit Tell me about your tell me about your belief. Tell me about your marriage. Tell me about why you believe. Um, I I just you know the the main thing that that is hurting us. It, it's there's still the, the the lifestyle that we're talking about is still not popular among people. It's not it's still a very very low percent percentage of actual participation in this lifestyle. It's just like, yeah. They yell out, but here's the other thing. A lot of people believe they have the right to practice their lifestyle and that we don't have a right to question it. And so the biggest sin in a lot of people's mind is not LGBTQ. The biggest sin in people's mind is intolerance. And so that's, that's where we're at. And somehow we have to bring the standard of God uh, into the conversation. We have to teach them that we're not questioning God. In our schools, there are sixth grade children who are very confused about their sexuality already. Satan creates this confusion because these relationships are about love and acceptance, like you say, that God is not the author of confusion. 
Good point. That's what Satan's after. Is he wants children to grow up confused, questioning, and they should never have those thoughts. They should be having a good childhood, and yet they're they're thinking about these things, and that's exactly what Satan wants. Good point on God is not the author of confusion. Good point. All right, we'll take a three or four minute break and have our devotion here in just a second.